Hi everyone. So it's 4.49 in the morning and I'm sitting here um, finally getting back to the second part of the questions. Hopefully we can just make this two parts and I can get back to this. Um, I think in the future I'm going to organize this a little bit better and maybe we could just talk about topics. I've been reading about um, Discord where we could go and just maybe all talk about things live for an hour or so. And that way we can just sort of set aside time and have more interaction and be more pointed about whatever the subject is. Um, I'm also looking into podcasting because I just know so many amazing, just normal people that you would never hear from on a podcast. And I would love to just have conversations with them and open them up to all of you as in a way that can maybe be more um, interactive and enriching. And anyway, I have ideas around that, but I just have to probably in the new year, sit down and actually put some time into figuring out how that would work. So anyway, for today, I'm going to try and motor through some of these questions, but still try and answer them in a way that um, is flushed out enough that it gives you something that that you can work with, or maybe that hopefully brings the nuance into the answers as I always want and try to do. Um, so I think I left off um, last time with the meat rabbits. And so now um, to Nikki's question, um, I'll just sort of grab the tidbits out of it that are specific to the question. But so she said, we purchased our raw milk or we purchased our raw milk products from a local A2A2 Guernsey farm. Um, I'll just stop there for a second. So uh, for those of you that don't know, A2A2 is just the protein factions within um, milk. There's um, a great book called The Devil in the Milk, if this is all new to you. And uh, in it, they talk about how there was a blip in, um, in dairy cows along the way when they were breeding for production, um, a sort of maybe a little bit before, but definitely during industrialization, sort of mid-century, um, where all of a sudden there was a protein, an A1 um, beta casein protein that got into the mix um, of dairy cows. And so in this book, um, I mean, it's quite detailed, but just to uh, be brief, they put up some science and studies that suggest that maybe a lot of our lactose intolerance and issues around dairy, aside from the pasteurization and homogenization, could also be attributed to this A1 uh, beta casein protein in milk. So, um, you know, the big production dairy cows like Holsteins are often um, A1. It doesn't mean they can't be A2. And I, I do know dairy farmers that are breeding to have their herds transitioning over to A2, A2. But a lot of the older heritage type breed cattle have more, are more likely to be A2, A2. And so a Guernsey cow, well, not all Guernseys are A2, A2. And I know this from trying to buy some years ago and I actually um, had to learn how to do that testing and send it off to the lab um, and and some of the Guernseys were A2A2 but you can't just say well they're Guernseys so they're A2A2 because they're not so the A2A2 of course um, being more 
being easier to digest, sort of like the old-fashioned cow before this A1 blip showed up in the mix. So we here on our farm have exclusively A2, A2 milk cows. And um, if we're going to crossbreed our milk cows to beef, which we do sometimes when we have enough dairy, um, we also have to check that the beef cow that we're, or sorry, the beef cow, the beef bull that we're using is A2, A2. Um, which can be tough and disappointing when you find a really nice bull, but he's not because um, we just want to be able to have the flexibility in the future. Um, You know, if we do crossbreed a dairy cow and they um, have a nice little heifer who's quite milky in her traits versus beefy in her traits, um, we might breed her back to dairy again sometime in the future. So we lose that ability to do that. Um, so that's why we try and stick with an A2A2 bull. If it's for beef, it really doesn't matter very much at all. So that's it has nothing to do with the if we were using the animal for beef. But okay, that was my little jump off the question and we'll get back on it now. It says uh, they're very helpful uh, at the dairy that she's talking about get, buying her um, dairy raw dairy from. Um, she says they're very helpful but have explained much to me about calf sharing, drying out a cow or having to be away from the cow during her milk season. Some dairy cow owners say you can be away for a few days if you calf share. The dairy said no to this. When I asked about drying up the cow during certain seasons, they didn't explain it very well to me. I'd love to learn about it all. Thank you. Um, so that's like, um, I could talk about this for literally four hours. <laughs> so um, I'll just to be specific, Nikki, to your question. Um, it's hard. Um, this is, uh, it, it's hard when you ask a dairy or a farm about, you know, calf sharing or drying out a cow or um, because what you'll learn is that everybody's going to give you a different answer based on what they do. And there's so many different ways to do things. And a lot of times, depending on personality, and it really is about personality, what someone thinks about you know, calf sharing or what they think about, like the best way to do something is we'll just come off their experience because I think psychologically everyone wants to believe that what they're doing is the best way. And um, I mean, that's so seldom true in any human endeavor. So, um, you know, take everything with a grain of salt. What you're hearing from with that person when you're asking these questions is just their experience. And depending on their um, level of humility or ego, you're going to get something that sounds a little bit more persistent and definitive, or you're going to get something that is a little bit more flexible and allows for other possibilities too. So I think the psychology of the person (laughs) of any teacher is really important too. Like if anyone pretends that they know everything, then I think you can pretty much disregard a lot of what they're saying or, you know, and if people speak in definitives, like it has to be this way or you can't do that. I mean, that's a red flag for me. Anyway, um, you said that some dairy calendars say you can be away for a few days if you calf share. The dairy said, no, I say no. <laughs> I don't know where you would be going if you calf shared. Um, 
you still need to be there. Um, and depending on the cow, you might, um, the dairy cows today have been bred to be very big producers um, and consume a lot of grain. And so as a small farm, you're trying to find um, the old fashioned type cow. You can get some good clues by their body shape, how big they are, the size of their heads and their jaws, um, if they'll do well on grain or not. And then with experience more that will come. But um, <clears throat> You know, and if they can even transition off grain just onto grass, which is what we do with all of our dairy cows, and it's very challenging. It's really hard. Our our um, breeding stock of these animals that have really had uh, their natural traits of being able to forage well on grass alone and produce a more moderate pr- uh, amount of milk have. Are, it's like finding a needle in a haystack, to be honest. Um, what we see now are these really big, uh, large-framed animals that require a lot of energy, a.k.a. grain, um, in order to produce mammoth amounts of milk, which it's just, to be frank for us, I mean, even when all of three of our kids were home drinking milk, it was too much. Um, you have to be making cheese and butter and doing all these, which is another huge investiture of your time. So, um, you know, can you be away? No, you can't. And that's the, that's the truth of it. Being away when you have a farm, unless you have someone here watching your farm is just, uh, you just can't. You, it is definite. You are definitely married to your farm and your place. And um, if you're used, if you're not used to that, um, it can feel, I think, suffocating to some people or restricting. Um, we might have gone through a bit of a period like that where we wanted to get away and do things. I mean, we're just now. I, I, I love where I am and I love our place, and it's nice to get away for a little break here and there. But I just don't have that feeling that um I want to get away and you know you have to you have to be there or somebody has to be there anyways when you have a a calf that's that's nursing or uh any little creatures that are running around um I think drying up the cow during certain seasons they didn't explain it well to me so the way that we do it here is we um, our cows have their calves in the spring and we share the milk with the calf and we milk um, all summer into the fall and then we are done and we do not milk during winter at all because um, to do that we will have to feed some sort of extra energy to the cow because she's putting her fat and her energy and her nutrients into her milk instead of on her body and where we live it's frigidly cold in the winter and <clears throat> to um milk her during the winter is to deplete her and and uh, what we are trying to do is have as long-lived a dairy cow as possible and for me, long-lived is 15 and over. That's what I'd say is long-lived. So we are not taking during the winter. And I actually, 
Uh, and I know I've spoken about this quite a bit too on Instagram is people talk about the seasonality of food, but they forget about the seasonality of, of animal products, which also have their own seasons. And when we don't do things to disrupt that, like forcing extra um, light onto chickens or, you know, trying to create these artificial environments that trick their bodies into con- to continue producing, um, it means that, yes, we end up with less eggs. And yes, in the winter, our dairy turns from like these fresh, uh, higher carbo- carbohydrate foods like milk or like, um, you know, the milk derivatives that you'll see um, in, uh, in the summertime, but, you know, in the wintertime, it's more cheese and the preserved summertime dairy products that you would get in the, in the winter. So I think that's okay too. I think, you know, on a lessening of the eggs that we get, that's okay too. Maybe we shouldn't eat eggs every day. Maybe we shouldn't have, um, milk every day or, you know, whatever fresh dairy it is that we're consuming. Um, yogurt as, as another example, like in the summer and the spring and the fall, we'll have more yogurt or, uh, kefir, but that's gone in the winter. So uh, in the winter I have frozen buttermilk from making butter all summer. Um, another thing is butter huge. Like in the summer, it's a cow on grass is capturing all of that sunlight and nutrients and putting into their butter and so that's a huge task for us in the summertime is making all that butter and then uh, I freeze it and in the winter we're eating all that sunshine that the cow made for us and all those beautiful nutrients so that's that's our cow dries up in the winter and um We've also had situations where if we have a cow that's getting up in age, we actually will skip breeding. Uh, And if, you know, you were to talk to a commercial farmer about skipping breeding for um, a season or a year, maybe, um, I think they'd, (laughs) I think they'd guffaw at that too. Um, Because, understandably it's about economics but they'll also tell you that if you skip breeding them a year you know all these terrible things will happen um i won't get into what they say but we have not found that at all and in fact we've had cows that i just felt you know she's had a calf every year for four years and i had another nice heifer that i prefer to breed and i don't want to have you know, four new heifers or calves from these few dairy cows in one year because our numbers, I'm always managing numbers because we only have so many that we can carry on our farm. And so I'll just skip here. And they, you know, have their next calf and they are healthier and um, more robust than they were the year before. So it works for us. Anyway, I hope that's that gets to some of your questions, Nikki. Um, so <clears throat> the next question was from Josina. Uh, she just said, super interested on more info regarding feeding animals at low cost and natural as possible, best breeds for grass-fed, how-to feeding with dairy cows. Um, 
Okay, let me take a sip of my coffee for this one. <clears throat> okay. So, oh boy, uh, info on regarding feeding animals at low cost and natural as possible. It's hard because feed right now is so expensive. Um, everything that we do has to be managed with how much it's costing us to do it. And that's just the facts. <laughs> um, people, I think, before they get in farming think, oh, you get all that beef for free or you get all that, you know, <clears throat> you can raise chickens for so cheap. And um, it's just, it's, it's not true. And I think there's ways that we can mitigate that, but it's it would be a lie for me to say that um, any of this is is low cost for sure. But with that in mind, there's things definitely that we do to try and stretch our dollars. Um, I would say number one is the management of how many animals you have. And if you're raising animals to sell, it's a very different calculation than if you're raising animals just for yourself. So, um, you know, at our first farm, we were selling grass-fed beef and organic pastured pork, and uh, we were also selling turkeys. And <clears throat> so, you know, you can you can sit down with a, a piece of paper and figure out your balance sheet of how much it costs you to get that animal to that age before you harvested it, and how much you had to put into it. Um, now we're just we sell uh, live surplus animals and a few extra bits here and there and we barter what's extra so um it's but i almost feel like we have to be even more careful now because um there's a tendency to just let things run away on you and so <clears throat> you know what does it mean if i'm raising uh, uh, 20 or 30 ducks compared to 50 ducks. Well, it means a lot in extra feed bills actually. So, um, as far as, um, low cost, well, here's what we've done. So we try to keep animals that aren't huge, um, grain guzzlers because it's the grain that costs us the most money by far. And when I say grain, I'm including the chicken and turkey and duck feed, all the fowl feed, <clears throat> because we don't feed our cows uh, grain. To get to the point of not feeding cattle grain, and I'm um, beef cattle, it's easier, but with dairy cattle, I, I already talked about how they're bred to really consume quite a bit of grain. Um, we had to really call um a lot of dairy animals so we would get dairy um jerseys guernseys um the heritage breed uh, we also had canadians for quite a while and we would have them for a year transitioning them to just grass only because i was unable to find farmers just feeding grass and of course that includes hay in the winter time and um you know, sometimes they could make that conversion and sometimes they couldn't. And you always have to be mindful of respecting and honoring that animal's genetics. You can't force an animal to just be solely on grass or hay. Um, that's a 
that's a sad situation. And I've seen people do that. I've seen people think that they can just grass feed chickens. And then I see their emaciated chickens and it just breaks my heart. And it's the same with any animal. There's just some animals that will not be able to make that transition. And then you're in the situation of deciding if you want to keep the animal and meet its nutritional needs, or if maybe it's best for another farm or, you know, whatever it is that you're going to do. And that takes time and experience, but it also takes humility. Like you, you cannot, it's just not fair to the animal to have this idea in your head of how you want things to be and then disregard all the messages the animal is sending you. It's it's not, it's not right to do things that way. Um, So I say that, you know, as well um, for all animals um, that are on your farm. So some of the things we've done uh, as far as keeping our costs low, and this is a really big part of also butchering on our farm, is being able, and I've shown this before, is being able to um, keep all of the all of the extra bits from butchering an animal that would be thrown away at a abattoir. So the par- the parts of the guts. Um, especially, and I'm specific, specifically talking about ruminants right now. So when we butcher, let's say a, a steer, as an example, um, you know, you have a huge amount of extra meat um, and extra trim from the butchering process. You have tripe and the organs that we don't eat, and I'm speaking of like lung, as an example. Um, I've tried it. It's just not my thing. But like, so, you know, lung and then cutting up bits of trachea. And I actually, my job, which is not the prettiest job, is that I sit with the gut pile and I cut up um, the different digestive um, the rumen and I, I'm, I'm going through the whole, all the stomachs and cutting up not only the, the different tripes that belong to each one, um, and putting those into bags, but I'm also taking out the semi-digested grasses and putting those into bags too. And so those semi-digested grasses are just loaded with bacteria and um, very beneficial bacteria uh, for the cow anyway. And um, I, we freeze all that. And so in the wintertime, when our fowls and uh, when we have pigs also, their nutritional needs are higher because they are putting a huge amount of their energy into just keeping their bodies warm. Um, we haul out these bags and it saves us an incredible amount of money. So when we are done, as an example, like the actual butchering process of a steer, I'm just using a steer as an example, um, there's, you know, buckets of trim that are left over from the dry aging process. So all of that, we pick through it and make sure there's no bones or anything um, really hard in there. And we grind that up. And we grind it up with um, the aforementioned lungs and or um, spleen or pancreas. And that all goes into mixes in the freezer. And then in the wintertime, 
when our animals need it, we pull that out and we supplement their feed with that. Obviously not the ruminant animals or any animal that's not um, an omnivore. But uh, that has been really important for us. It's kept our animals very healthy. And that's the other part of it is when we're talking about low cost is our animals just don't get sick. They just really don't get sick. And if they started getting sick, I'd be really looking at what I was doing and what I was feeding them and um, what was going on because that's not a natural state for animals to be sick. I think a lot of people spend time and money on dealing with what the sickness is that's in front of them. But if animals are getting sick, there's bigger questions to ask about what's, you know, your, your, practices are and what needs the the deeper underlying sort of what's going you know what's happening here that they're not their bodies aren't able to keep them healthy um so anyway and as far as best breeds for grass-fed you know what i've given up on that idea entirely josina i just find that you know there are breeds like the continental breeds of cattle specifically and then the commercial breeds of chickens so like you know a a charlet or a limousine for cattle let's say as an example or um you know the um the more commercial sort of birds they're not going to be great for grass-fed because that's not what they were ever bred for they were bred to get big fat fast on grain so and no one needs to tell me about their limousine that does great on grass I believe there are exceptions to the rule but um, I'm just talking in generalization so looking for those older breeds um, and then you know maybe reading Acres USA has some great books on grass-fed cattle and you can learn or go talk to a a rancher that could show you um, how to actually size up the body and make some, you know, make some evaluations of the frame of the animal to give you some good indications of if that animal will do well on pasture or not. Those are all things you'll need to pick up and and learn about. And I think I spoke kind of about like with our dairy cows, um, they get grass and uh, hay in winter just like all of our cattle do and um, if they uh, so when they are in milk the pastures are quite lush and bountiful and they're able to keep on weight well and if I saw their weight dropping then um, we would supplement with organic alfalfa and I say organic specifically all of our food is organic and that is a big extra cost But if I can't afford to feed them organic, I would stop raising the animals and buy organic animals from someone else. And uh, specifically with grain um, and alfalfa, some of it is genetically modified. All of it is covered in glyphosate. And glyphosate, well, you might as well just, you know, put a missile in your guts and let let it fire away because it's just devastating for your whole digestive system. And after dealing with illness for quite a while, um, I'm very careful um, what goes in my body. And in fact, I've not, uh, I don't know, 20, 30 years we've been eating organic food. And uh, I'm very 
committed to that, especially now more than ever because of how they are using glyphosate um, and these other herbicides and pesticides um, in a way that is so ubiquitous and using it now um, as a way to dry grain instead of just letting it desiccate as it naturally did um, before they found a way to desiccate it quicker, saturating it in this stuff. So that's a non-negotiable for me. Um, so yeah, we pay more for that. Absolutely we do. And, um, I will troubleshoot around getting that grain, you know, maybe you don't buy the whole blended mix of let's say organic layer for your chickens, but instead you buy, um, organic wheat and organic barley or organic oats and you look at recipes from maybe pre-1900 where people used to do that and come up with your own mixes it, that will save you quite a bit of money as well especially if you can supplement the protein part of it which is where I live is almost ubiquitously soy um, so if you can, like for us too, like the frozen buttermilk from butter making in the summer will often get added to the grains and they soak overnight. So that's also um, a protein and, you know, carbohydrate too. And there's some nice fats left over in there and stuff. So anyways, those are just some ideas. Um, okay, Yvette. Um, so... Um, other requests talking about, um, cattle butchering, nose to tail preparation for packaging and stocking in the freezer, rug hooking skills, um, <laughs> perspective and things to put into practice to live regardless of the insanity around us. Uh, there's a few of them here. So I'll just try and touch on a couple of that, um, Cattle butchering and nose-to-tail preparation for packaging and stocking in the freezer. I don't trust the butchers around us. Um, boy, cattle butchering. Um, I'm. I will speak. I'll just skim over that one. Um, it's just for us. It's non-negotiable now. I'm. I'm so glad that and so grateful that I had such an incredible mentor that not only told me or taught me the humanity in and what it was to um, harvest your own animals. It was something that I was terrified of. And uh, I, I, I just, <laughs> I didn't think I was actually capable of actually. And I am so glad that I learned from him and I learned that there was compassion and a great, amount of love into into harvesting an animal out on pasture um when it you know not loading it up in a trailer and not bringing it to somebody else and not walking away from that with a knot in your guts because nobody likes that nobody likes to do that um and that actually had a lot to do with why we ended up stop uh, from our first farm when we sold grass-fed beef, why we stopped doing that. I just, here to legally sell beef, we had to bring it to an abattoir. And um, in order to butcher our own, we don't. So that was actually part of um, our consideration in stopping that enterprise from our first farm. 
I hope you can't hear me swallowing my coffee, but I have to take a sip. Okay, nose to tail preparation for packaging and stocking in the freezer. Oh boy, that could be a whole, that could be a whole thing. We just, I already spoke to how I go through the gut pile and we cut everything bone in. I don't know how people or why anyone would bone any cut out that deserves a bone because that's where the flavor and the moisture is. And who doesn't like to just gnaw away on a good bone? I don't know. I don't know anyone that doesn't. Um... We butcher our cattle out on pasture, we hang them, we skin them and gut them, and then we bring them into the meat cooler, we hang them for three weeks, sometimes four weeks if they're super fatty and luscious and they can handle it. We have tried going longer than that as an experiment a few years ago. I think we went maybe six or seven weeks and we won't do it again. I know some people you know, you can, you can age for as long as you want. I mean, there's places where you can get a six month, eight month age steak. But um, for us, for uh, our family, that length of hanging um, just meant having to trim away even more meat. And there was a level of, of trim and waste that I was not happy with. So for us, um, the three week mark usually covers most animals. Um, And after that time, we go in and we every we have the animal quartered. And we just take one quarter out and every single thing on that quarter gets put into um, a cut. And after uh we have we when we first started off we had hand saws <laughs> oh hand saws and pulleys so we could hang the meat off the rafters of the inside of our barn so that critters couldn't crawl up it and steal our meat and um we butchered in our living room on a table a big table that was laid out And uh, over the years, we have just slowly accumulated a meat saw, an electric meat saw. It's like a big band saw, but specifically for meat, which is heaven. And we love it. And we tell it we love it every single time we butcher. And my husband doesn't have to use that meat saw and his muscles to cut every chop that we have because we leave it bone in. Um, and we have, uh, we've gone through how many meat grinders? I don't know. They're all crap. Get a commercial grinder and save your sanity. Uh, we got this one from, I've shown pictures of it. I think it's 1947 or 48. It was made in Canada and it's just huge. And we actually just, um, had the whole thing taken apart and, reworked by a machinist on a town near us this year because it had never received any maintenance so it needed just some TLC so it should be good for another 50 years now um so um packaging every single time I put my pictures on Instagram I get inundated with questions about packaging so I'll just quickly address that here we use butcher freezer paper 
butcher freezer paper is that reddish brownish paper. It's quite thick. It's not the same as just the paper that they wrap your meat in at a deli, let's say, if you got something and they put it in there. This is a thicker paper and it's lined on the underside with uh, plastic film. It used to be lined back in the day with wax and I wish it was still wax, but that's, it is what it is. And, um, there's a few reasons I use that. Uh, number one is that it's not pure plastic, at least. It will burn after. I can burn it um, or recycle it. Um, but the, the problem with vacuum wrapping things, it, well, first of all, it kind of makes me gag. Um, <laughs> Um, so vacuum wrapping, you're still, meat starts oxidizing when it's exposed to oxygen and light. We all know that. Well, when you have meat in clear plastic bags, it's still oxidizing and breaking down. Um, also you can go ahead, uh, on your own and do some research about the bacteria load in vacuum packed meats. Um, it's, it, it's exponentially higher than in, in the meats wrapped in paper. Um, so there's that as well. I don't like using that amount of plastic. I just find it bothersome. I think it's ugly, to be frank. And I think, and for me, aesthetics matter quite a bit. And also the meat, frankly, keeps a lot better when you wrap it properly in this paper. So people will say to me, oh, don't you get freezer burn? Absolutely not. And in fact, I have meat. Um, I've had meat that's been in the freezer for two years in butcher paper. And when it's wrapped properly, it's not going to have freezer burn. So um, again, that's, that's wrapping it properly so that it's tight and that's a bit of an art it takes experience and time to get that to do that properly um but yeah so that's that's pretty much I feel like there's one more a couple more reasons I should talk about using the paper but I'm just not if there's some other questions you have about that I can answer them but um that's that I don't know what the brand is if, if you're gonna ask me I don't no, I buy. I think the people that make it in Canada are called Macmillan. It's but that's just a paper company, so um, you can buy it from. Uh, you know, you could even go to your butcher and just ask them for a roll of butcher freezer paper, and they'll usually sell it to you. I'm not talking about a butcher in a grocery store, but I just mean like a, you know, maybe a small um, abattoir that has a butcher attached or. Um, like we have a meat shop that's kind of close to us and they do deer uh, during hunting season. They'll butcher deer for hunters and they'll sell you rolls of butcher freezer paper. And um, it should be thick. And then we use paper tape, um, which is pretty important. I, I won't use the other tape and I definitely won't use elastics. It drives me nuts when people, uh, I just got some some lamb from someone and they used to, the butcher used elastics around everything. Um, it's just not tight enough. You have to, I use the, uh, paper tape. It's just a roll of brown paper that has adhesive on the side and it, it 
when it's moistened, it um, it just forms exactly around the package. So for those that weren't interested in the butcher <laughs> freezer paper, that was probably a bit too long of a of a explanation for that. But I, I get that question so much. So there, now you're in the know. Rug hooking. Mm, yes, I love rug hooking. My youngest daughter and I... Um, joined this um, group of elderly women, uh, this was years ago, um, on Wednesday mornings for their hooking club. They just, those old ladies just love talking about how they were hookers. Um, They were just so great and they loved having um, me, but probably more my daughter around, someone young that was interested in rug hooking as well. It's just something I like to do with my hands. I like sitting down and crafting things and creating things. And I mean, I'm sure you know, too, is just to be able to sit and, and think and let your brain wander and, and to be able to use, you know, linen and wool. And um, I started dabbling this year in um, hand dyeing wool, and I, I want to get a lot better at that. So there's so many beautiful plants and things from around nature around me that I'm so excited to just explore the different gradients and saturations and stuff with that. And I told my husband, he has to build me a a dye shed outside so I can do that. So we'll see if I get that for my birthday next year. Um, And Yvette's last question is, about perspective and things to put into practical practice to live regardless of the insanity around us. And that might be where I leave things off, but um, it's, you know, I, I'm probably feeling just like so many of you are feeling. I, it is insanity that's around us and it's amplified by, um, you know, the media and, I think a lot of fearful people. And so I'm very careful with what I allow in. I don't listen to or watch or anything, any mainstream sort of media, because I don't want them to tell me what the world is. That's they can talk about, you know, they, they, what they want me to think or, but that they don't have, any authority over what the world is and their version of it looks nothing like mine. And I just don't want them to taint what I know to be true. And it takes energy to overwrite those lies, you know, and I'd rather put my energy into other things. So that's one thing. Um, You know, I was talking to a friend yesterday and she has a lot of people around her, like because of the nature of her farm and, you know, she's lived where she's lived for a long time. So quite a, quite a big, uh, large amount of diverse people. And I mean, that's great. It's, it's wonderful, but I think it's also been a bit hard on her because she's feels very much that she's in the minority in her positions around what's happening right now and what she doesn't want in 
her body or her family doesn't want in their bodies. And so they feel a little bit isolated or, or like I said, in the minority compared to the people around them. And they're getting a lot of pressure. And um, I, I will admit that I'm blessed because that is not my situation. And for the people that I do know that think differently from me, I'm clear that I'm um, grateful for our relationship and happy to have one, but this is, there's boundaries there. And if people don't know that they are, you know, they're not my choices for my body or our family are not up for their critique, then that relationship just wouldn't work for me to be frank. Um, so I, you know, I just did that story about um, connection as antidote. And I think it pretty do- much does sum up what my practical practices are. Um, regardless of the insanity around us, I, in the moments around me, I just am in the present moment around me. And, um, you know, every day we do chores and I do chores mindfully and I stop always and enjoy the animals and watch them for a bit and see who's doing what. And I pay attention to the sun rising and to the weather on my skin. And then I, after chores, take my dogs and Often some barn cats will follow and will go into the forest around us and go for a long walk. And my walk always brings me to a, a stone altar I, I built where I get down on my knees and pray and speak to our daughter and speak to my best friend or my ancestors and to... God as I know God and I sometimes I just cry if I need to cry and sometimes I I try to just be there and receive whatever I'm supposed to receive if there's anything you know there's times where I'll just concentrate on the stone underneath my knees the big rock underneath my knees put my hands down on the earth and the sun will just break through the clouds and shine directly on my face and (laughs) it just feels so connecting and like such a profound gift to just be on this earth and have the warmth of a sun that is gazillion miles away still reaching my skin I'm I mean that's beautiful and I just want to be here for that you know um and I mean it's it can't always be that way you know I come back from my walk and there's things to do and tasks to do but I think we can always grab something even in a moment yesterday I it was like 7 30 or 8 at night and I had brought all the the ducks that we harvested the other day um 
into our little meat shed because it was so cold outside. And I was gutting them inside there and um, listening to uh, the Healthy Rebellion podcast with Nikki and Rob, who I feel like are my friends. I've been listening to them so long and um, they were talking about sort of the, what's going on right now and the psychology behind fear and sort of mass group think. And I had my hands up a duck's rear um, pulling out guts and, um, you know, I was cutting away the livers and I just was like, this is so just being there and marveling at these little hearts and livers and just, I don't know, it, you know, you can go through these things and rush them and just sort of like, it's a job and you got to get to the end of it. Or you could just like truly slow down and be there and have the humility to marvel at something simple. It, to me, it's all those little pieces all those little things that sort of gather together in a day and make me feel just so grateful that I can still feel grateful, I guess. You know, a lot of you know that we, our daughter died earlier this year and um, the anguish that you just carry in your bones for life, I'm sure. Um, that you can have such pain and still look for beauty because you learn that it's when I see beauty or feel beauty, I'm feeling my daughter. So how could I turn my back to that? You know, it's all we got. <laughs> Okay, now I'm going to cry, so I should go so I don't sniffle your ears away. There's probably still a million more questions. I only got to a couple. I hope I didn't bore you. And um, we'll see what we can do with making this a little more polished. But I hope for now, me just handing over the rough and authentic is good. Okay. Bye, everybody.